0: This Day in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History Class, a show that pays tribute to people of the past by telling their stories today. I'm Gabe Luzier, and in this episode, we're revisiting a day when anti-Chinese sentiment turned neighbor against neighbor and transformed a once-peaceful city into a war zone. The day was February 9th, 1886. President Grover Cleveland sent 300 U.S. troops to Seattle, Washington, in an effort to put down an anti-Chinese riot that had erupted two days earlier. The violence in Seattle had its roots in the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. That law suspended Chinese immigration to the United States for 10 years and also blocked the path to citizenship for any Chinese immigrants who were already there. Congress passed the act in response to pressure from labor unions who saw Chinese laborers as competition and wanted a way to squeeze them out of the market. Put another way, the act was a chance to appease the white population without actually doing anything to solve the deeper problems of job scarcity and anti-Chinese sentiment. The U.S. government figured that by allowing current Chinese immigrants to remain in the country, it could avoid angering China by deporting thousands of people, and thus would keep the country as a trading partner. However, that compromise tainted the law in the eyes of those who had pushed for it the hardest. They didn't just want to prevent more Chinese workers from coming to America, they also wanted to get rid of the ones who were already there. Chinese laborers were often willing to work for lower wages than their white counterparts, leading many white workers to be passed over in favor of Chinese ones. The party at fault in that arrangement was not the Chinese, who were desperate enough to accept work for low pay. The root of the problem was the employers the people who abandoned the white workforce in order to save money by exploiting the labor of minority workers who were in even more dire straits. It would have been more productive for the white settlers to team up with the Chinese laborers and demand better treatment from their employers. But pitting the poor against each other has always been a reliable way for those with wealth and power to maintain the status quo. And so it was here. In the end, the Chinese Exclusion Act still wasn't enough to satisfy the resentment of many white American workers, a lot of whom were immigrants themselves. Instead, throughout the American West, groups of white settlers became violently anti-Chinese. Over the next 50 or so years, these groups would carry out coordinated attacks, instigate riots, and lead purges that resulted in the displacement of more than 20,000 Chinese people. The assault began in earnest in the fall of 1885, during a period of extreme job scarcity in the West. Much of the violence was carried out by the members of a kind of militant brotherhood known as the Knights of Labor. In the Pacific Northwest, the Knights' goal was to forcibly remove all Chinese workers from the Puget Sound region of Washington. To that end, on the evening of November 3, 1885, the Washington branch of the Knights of Labor stormed the homes of the last 300 Chinese residents in Tacoma, Washington. The 500-man mob included the town's mayor, judge, and city councilors. Armed with clubs and pistols, they smashed their way into the residents' homes and then marched them to the railroad, where they were forced onto a train and shipped off to Portland. An eyewitness named Tak Nam recalled the event, saying, "...they drove us like so many hogs." Over the next four days, Tacoma's two Chinatown neighborhoods were burned to the ground. The lead perpetrators were easily identified but not a single one of them was convicted of a crime. This practice of violent expulsion quickly became known as the Tacoma Method, and it was repeated in cities up and down the West Coast. Within three months, angry white settlers in Seattle were ready to try the method for themselves. At the time, Seattle's Chinatown District was a mixed-use neighborhood, with most residences built on top of retail storefronts. By early 1886, as much as half of the city's Chinese population had already fled due to the increasing threat of violence, that left fewer than 400 Chinese in the entire city. On February 7, 1886, those remaining residents were visited by a group of men posing as health inspectors, possibly members of the Knights of Labor. They claimed the Chinese-occupied buildings, all of them were unfit for habitation due to overcrowding. With the backing of many of the local police, the group began forcing the residents from their homes. One eyewitness later recalled the violent scene, saying, quote, During the riotous proceedings, the residence of Mr. Chan Yi He was invaded by the mob, and his pregnant wife was dragged downstairs from the second story and out on the street by the hair of her head. She later miscarried. Once the mob had rounded up the 350 or so Chinese residents and most of their possessions, they loaded them onto wagons and took them to the city's waterfront to be put on a ship bound for San Francisco. However, the phony inspectors hadn't actually arranged for the Chinese residents' passage. Apparently, they just assumed the ship's captain would give them hundreds of free tickets in a show of solidarity. When that turned out not to be the case, the mob tried to course-correct as best they could. They passed around a hat and quickly collected enough funds to pay the way of at least some of their captives. 86 people, to be exact. On the plus side, that delay gave city officials enough time to send a group of cadets known as the Home Guard down to the harbor to protect the immigrants. Before the steamer ship could set sail, the captain was served with a writ of habeas corpus, charging that the Chinese passengers were being illegally restrained on board the ship. He was ordered to appear with the passengers at the city courthouse the next morning. In the meantime, the ship and everyone on board would remain docked right where they were. As for the Chinese residents still on the docks, The guards escorted them to a nearby warehouse, which was deemed safer than returning to their homes. On the morning of the 8th, the Chinese residents, both on and off the ship, were taken to the courthouse and asked one by one whether or not they wanted to leave Seattle. Given the events of the previous day and the fact that many of their homes were in the process of being demolished by the mob, the majority of those present said yes. Now they did want to leave. They were escorted back to the dock and began boarding the ship. After 196 Chinese residents were on board, the captain announced that the ship was full and that the 100 or so residents who still wanted to leave would have to wait for the next ship to arrive a few days later. The guards began escorting the remaining Chinese back to what was left of their homes, But they didn't make it far before they were confronted by a screaming mob of about 2,000 people. The mob demanded to know where the Chinese were being taken. The guards ordered the mob to let them pass, but the men refused. Some of the guardsmen tried to arrest the most aggressive members of the mob, and things turned violent in an instant. Some in the mob grabbed the guardsmen's guns and tried to yank them away. In response, several guardsmen fired into the crowd, injuring five people, one of whom died the following morning. Caught in the middle once again, the Chinese threw their bags to the ground and lay face down in the street, hoping not to be shot. The mob fell back so that the wounded could be carried away, but then they began to mass around the guards once again. Though badly outnumbered, the guardsmen formed a protective barrier around the Chinese men who were still lying in the street. The tense standoff lasted for the next half hour until finally, the crowd gradually dispersed and the Chinese were taken back to Chinatown. Soon after, Governor Squire imposed a dusk-to-dawn curfew in downtown Seattle and stationed armed guards and local police on every block to enforce it. The next day, February 9th, President Grover Cleveland declared martial law and dispatched 300 federal troops to quell the riots and prevent more coerced expulsions. Cleveland justified the move, saying it was necessary due to the actions of, quote, evil disposed persons. Once army forces arrived, the city slowly calmed down over the next few days. On February 14th, the second steamer ship finally departed, with another 110 Chinese immigrants on board. This left only between 50 and 80 Chinese people in the whole city. Some of them eventually left too, until only a few dozen remained in Seattle. Martial law was lifted a week later, on February 22nd, but federal troops held their positions until the summer, just in case. In the aftermath, Congress paid the Chinese government more than $276,000, equivalent to about $330 million today. The money was given as compensation for the expulsions, another attempt to stay on China's good side for the sake of trade deals. However, Congress was careful to note that the payment was made, quote, out of humane consideration and without reference to liability. As for the victims, the Chinese immigrants who had been illegally attacked, threatened, and forced or coerced into leaving their homes, they got nothing. And in that way, along with many others, their story is the same story as other immigrants and indigenous people in the United States and across the world. A few years after the expulsion, Chinese laborers were welcomed back to Seattle after the Great Fire of 1889 destroyed much of the city, and made their help necessary to rebuild it. Still, it took 20 years for Seattle's Chinese population to return to even the meager level it was at in 1885. Eventually, though, the community did recover. Those few who never left had kept a foothold in the city, preserving Chinatown so that later generations could turn it into the vibrant, diverse neighborhood it is today. But that doesn't mean that anti-Chinese sentiment has disappeared from Seattle, or from the United States in general. Sadly, just the opposite. On January 21st, 2020, Seattle became the first U.S. city to report a COVID-19 case. It didn't take long for fearmongers to get to work, scapegoating Chinese Americans once again, and declaring COVID-19 the quote, China virus. This led to a still ongoing surge of violence and discrimination against Asian Americans, particularly Chinese. Just like before, people with so much in common are being pitted against each other through the manipulation of those with more wealth and power. While it's disheartening to see how well the same old tactic still works, the cycle can be broken. Fear of the other can be unlearned. It's not an easy process or a quick one, but if we don't speak up in defense of those who need it, this dark day in history will be repeated again and again. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can always send them my way at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks, as always, to Chandler Mays for producing the show. And a special thanks to Joey Pat, our guest editor for this episode. And of course, thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class.